All right. Hello and welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host, Dale, the Real Seeker. And uh, today I'm uh, joined by a special guest, Dr. Kevin McQuaid. Hey, Kevin. Hi, Dale. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. Very glad to, to have you on board for today's show because uh, we're kind of be going to be uh, following up on the panel review show part six that I did where we the second topic was looking at the Shroud Man from an anatomical or uh, forensic pathologist point of view. Mm -hmm. uh, just just before we get into today's topic, obviously, I just kind of want to turn it over to you as the guest. It's your first time on the Shroud Wars series here. So do you want to maybe take some time to introduce the audience as to who you are, a bit about your background, and maybe some stuff about your faith journey, if you don't mind sharing? Sure. Well, as I was telling you before I came on, is that I, I grew up in western New York, in Grand Island, New York. And uh, I grew up in a fairly devout Catholic family in a part of the country that... I thought was nearly 100% Catholic and mostly Irish and Italian. And I, so I never really had a, a, a firm or great devotion personally, but in the, when I was a child, I thought, it might be good to become a priest. <laughs> and, but as it as time went on, I became more of a cultural Catholic. And and after I left, my family moved to Northern Virginia near DC when I was 15. And they were still devout and I was still involved in my faith, but I went to college and sort of fell away. And as part of this program, what's pertinent to this program is when I was growing up, when I would see pictures of the shroud, I'd say, that's Jesus. Of course, that's Jesus. I never knew that there was a controversy that it could be otherwise. So uh, I went to University of Virginia. I was a a pre-med student there. And then after I graduated from University of Virginia, I went to Georgetown for medical school. And I was still pretty much a lapsed Catholic at the time. And, but I would go to mass at the, the chapel at the medical school. There was a a Catholic chapel and there was a Jesuit priest that was there. He was the, the chaplain for the medical school. So I would go to mass fairly often at noon. And uh, it was one day I just decided I'm going to go to the main campus and go to noon mass on the main campus. I'd never been there. <clears throat> And it was, it was probably a 10 minute, 15 minute walk from the medical school to the main campus. And I think it was, uh, I was second year medical student. And during mass, there was a very dynamic priest. And 
your your viewers may not know this, but during Mass, there is the consecration of the Eucharist. And after the Eucharist is consecrated to become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, the priest says, the mystery of faith, and we we proclaim the memorial acclamation. And back when I was in medical school, one of the memorial acclamations was, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. And this priest in his homily, I can still picture it. He said, Christ didn't just die. Christ was murdered. He was turned in by his friends. And he probably suffered the most agonizing death of all time. And if I hadn't been sitting in the pew, I would have been on the floor. I, it's hard to describe what happened, but it rocked my world to the core. And when I reflect on it, I knew at that time, I said to myself, I made a implicit vow to God that I would never take his sacrifice for granted again, and that I would impress his sacrifice on my mind and in my heart. <laughs> I walked around in a daze for a couple hours after that, and I didn't know how it would come about, but like I said, I made an implicit vow. And, and one of the ironies was before that, before that incident at mass, I had done a rotation my first year of medical school at the DC medical examiner's office. And uh, so I spent a semester, half a year at the DC medical examiner's office. And I knew then that I wanted to be a pathologist, but I said to my friends, I'm going to be a pathologist, but I will never be a medical examiner because I don't want to be confronted every day with one, what one supposed human being would do to another human being. And so my second year is when my my Paul on the road to Damascus <laughs> incident happened. And so I, I was very interested in pathology and I, I graduated from Georgetown, got married and I did my residency in pathology with the Air Force. It's in San Antonio at Lackland Air Force Base at Wilfrid Hall. And as part of residency, we do a, a month long rotation at the San Antonio Medical Examiner's Office. It's Bear County. And there is a very famous pathologist, forensic pathologist named Vince DeMaio who was the chief medical examiner. I think he's still chief there. So I, I spent a month doing forensics. And then I went to, after I finished residency, 
the Air Force sent me to the Philippines and I did a fair number of forensic cases in, in the Philippines. And then we went to Germany. And when I went to Germany, I took the place of a guy who was, who was a forensic pathologist. He had done his fellowship at, at the LA County medical examiner's office. So they, they needed someone to replace him to do the Navy and Air Force forensic cases. And so I did what a soldier is never supposed to do. I volunteered <laughs> because I figured I had, I had enough experience in forensics to do the job. So I became the deputy chief medical examiner for the armed forces in Europe for from 1991 to 93. Wow. And so I, the irony never ceases to amaze me because I had said, as I told you, when I was a first year medical student, I will never be a medical examiner. And in 93, I was actually I was actually offered a, a job as a medical examiner at, at Cook County, which is the medical examiner's office for Chicago. But in 93, 94, we decided to come go to Texas. Yeah. So but along the way, my wife and I became very very devout, some might say fanatic Catholics, but we, we became very good friends with our pastor, Father Gavin Vaverick is his name. And he was the pastor for a long time at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Longview, Texas. And we would go out to dinner with him occasionally. And, and it was in April of 1997, we were out to dinner with him. And that was the day that there was a fire in the Shroud Chapel. And it was all over the news. And we were, Father Gavin and I were waiting for our table with my wife. Mm -hmm. And the news came on and we were watching the television. And he, I said, uh, you know, Father, I've always thought that I would apply my forensic and medical knowledge to the study of the shroud. And he said, well, why don't you do it? And you can give a talk. <laughs> and I thought to myself, this was, I can, I'm going to fulfill my vow now that this is the way he's going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to give a talk to 25 people on a Wednesday night at adult faith formation. And that'll be it. I will have, I will have completed my vow. <laughs> and so I gave my first, uh, he pestered me for a long time if I was going to do it. And I told him, yes, father, I told you I would do it. Stop pestering. <laughs> and so uh, everything that I had thought about the shroud, everything that I had studied, I took a week off of work and wrote everything down. And that was December, January of 90, 
798. And then Lent of 98, I gave my first talk to about between three and 300 and 500 people. And I thought that would be it, but it, it's sort of taken on a life of its own. There you go. There you go. Awesome. Awesome. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating journey. You know, like it's fascinating how God uses us, even in ways that we're at the time, we're kind of like Jonah. We want to run away. Uh, but then God, you know, uses us in the exact way that we don't want to do. And we find out that's the best, the best thing for us. Right. So, yes, absolutely. And there was, I can tell you a, a funny story. One of the reasons I, I was hesitant to, to, to speak publicly is because I hated public speaking <laughs> and and God prepared me because my last job before we moved to Texas was as a professor of pathology at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. So I was forced to uh, speak to big in a big lecture hall, and we had a pathology lab with second year medical students. So I would have to speak in public to, you know, 15 or so medical students a couple times a week for a year. Wow. And so I think he was preparing me. And <laughs> if you ask me to describe God, I would call him a comedian because I was, I forget what year it was. Um, history isn't my, isn't my strong suit. So uh, dates, dates are usually not forthcoming, but I was, it was a Sunday evening. I was asked to give a talk at a Masonic temple in Shreveport, Louisiana. And this was probably, I would guess 20 years ago. And so it was going to be a Sunday evening talk. And Sunday morning, I was going up, walking up the driveway to get the newspaper. And the newspaper would come in a plastic bag. And I was praying on the way up to the, to get my newspapers. I said, God, I don't enjoy doing this, but I do it for you. Yeah. And so I pick up the paper and I'm going to paraphrase, but it, the title of the article that I saw when I picked up the paper is group goes around country helping people overcome their fear of public speaking. <laughs> and the, the, the first, the first story it told was Jerry Seinfeld, the comedian during his stand-up routine would say, you know, they've done a survey and the greatest fear that people have is public speaking. And the second greatest fear is death, which means if you're at a funeral, you'd rather be laying in the casket than giving the eulogy. Exactly. <laughs> All right, God, I won't complain anymore. All right. Awesome. All right, cool. Well, yeah, I think um, what I can do, if you don't mind just taking an extra couple minutes to kind of, on the shroud in particular, um, what's your general take on the, the historicity of the shroud and how you think the shroud images were formed? Again, just, just briefly kind of thing. You don't need to go into 
too much detail for that one, but. Well, the shroud itself is most, most of your viewers have probably seen it. Yeah. And one of the most striking things that has happened in my research and in my thinking about the shroud is, is there's a, a woman, Rebecca Jackson, mm -hmm. and your viewers may have heard of Dr. John Jackson. Yeah. Well, Rebecca Jackson is now a Hebrew Catholic, but she, before she married Dr. John Jackson, she was an ethnologist, a cultural anthropologist. Mm -hmm. And when she first saw the shroud, she said, that man is Jewish. Yeah. And, and, and the shroud has not only the, hang on Oops. Can you hear me? Hello? Oh, I think the, 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 cloth it, the cloth itself. Yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah, I think you're back now. You cut out for a little bit, but yes, the cl everything about the shroud, the cloth itself, the images on the cloth, the characteristics of the body are Jewish. The linen itself, they, it conforms to Jewish burial practices. The the man of the shroud, the, let me go back. The shroud itself is 14 feet, three inches long and three feet, seven inches wide, mm -hmm. which is an odd number, but it's, it's two cubits by eight cubits. The cloth itself is fine linen, which is a cloth that if you can afford it, you can be buried in it's and there are similar claws that date back to masada which the the latest time period is like 70 a.d and it the cloth itself also is similar to cloths that were in the 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 temple in jerusalem Mm -hmm. Yeah, the man, it's the man himself. He's about my height and weight. He's about 5'10", 5'11", 175 pounds, guesstimating. His hair conforms to halaha, which is the Jewish law, which forbids the four corners of a man's head to be cut. Anything that's a, a square signifies man's restriction and a circle connotes wholeness. He also, his hair is in a ponytail, which conforms to ancient rabbinical hairstyle. His, his fingers are outstretched. Anything resembling a fist connotes demonic defiance. And it's actually a fist for some reason where your thumb is in between your index and middle finger. So his fingers are outstretched. The blood stains themselves 
correspond to somebody who had been nailed to a cross, the angle of the blood flows, his beard conforms to halaha. All right. All right. Cool. All right. Cool. Well, yeah, obviously, you know, what's the reason you're here? You are a pathologist and a professional professional medical expert. So I kind of wanted to turn it to you. you you've kind of already hinted at this in your last couple answers, but, um, you know, take, take some time to give us with respect to the body images and then the blood stains. Um, what are some of the positive reasons that in your professional medical expertise say, yes, this, this isn't an artistic representation. It covered a real human corpse that's anatomically correct. Well, we know it is many things. Mm -hmm. For one, the artist, artistic representations, yeah. they show almost always nails in the palms of the hands and in the feet, through the feet themselves. And they, almost everybody pictures Jesus' scourging as tearing his flesh. None of that is on the shroud. He's, he's crucified through the wrists, through the ankles. And as a forensic pathologist, I know that his wounds correspond to contusions or bruises and abrasions because in forensics there are only two things that cause pattern wounds which are on the on the shroud and that is contusions or abrasions tearing of the skin incised wounds lacerations which are blunt fraught blunt force trauma which causes tearing do not cause patterned wounds. So he has patterned wounds. And that, if, if his scourging had actually torn the flesh, he probably would not have survived to Calvary because of the blood loss. And the executioners, they were tasked with torturing them within an inch of their life, but they had to make it to the place of crucifixion or they would be killed themselves. And the blood itself is truly blood and the blood flows. It's AB, which is very uncommon in the, in the West, but in the Middle East, it's a very common blood type. It also, tests have shown that there's pulmonary edema fluid on the cloth. And, and pulmonary edema fluid is, is copiously uh, released in asphyxiation. You know, we, uh, narcotic overdoses cause respiratory death respiratory arrest and it's called a, a foam cone which 
if you see a foam cone, which is a, a foam beard around the nose and mouth, that's an indication that they may have uh, asphyxiated or suffocated from a, a drug overdose. And one of the things that I love the most about the shroud that lets me know that it's not an artistic depiction is that if you look at the frontal image of the shroud, the feet are cut off. You don't, you see the back of the feet on the, on the back image, which means when they were burying him, they didn't completely cover his body. And we know from scripture and from Jewish burial customs, it is incumbent on the people who, who bury the deceased that they bury them before the sun goes down. And we know from the scriptures that another factor that was involved was the Sabbath was the following day. And you're not supposed to bury on a Sabbath day because that's a day of joy. So Christ was died about three o'clock in the afternoon. Sundown was probably about six o'clock. So they had three hours to prepare his body. We know that they picked flowers and other vegetation to place around him, which was customary. And, and then seal up the tomb and go home before sundown. So they had three hours to do a lot of stuff. They didn't realize that they had put him in the wrong spot on the shroud. That when they put the, the, the other half of the cloth over his body, they didn't realize that it wasn't going to cover him. They didn't account for his, uh, his forehead to occiput length before they covered him, but they, they couldn't redo it because it was sundown. Yeah, that's interesting. So that's obviously an, an artist wouldn't have done that. They would have included the right. Right? Okay. All right, cool. Um, there's there's the, uh, you know, I told you, uh, I mentioned John Jackson's name. John Jackson, he is maybe the leading scientific expert on the shroud. He, he runs with his wife, Rebecca, the Turin Shroud Center in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Mm -hmm. And John Jackson was the lead scientist who organized the Shroud of Turin Research Project in 1978. Yeah. And... <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> oh, go ahead, go ahead. So, no, I just... So... And the... Hang on a second. No problem, no problem. All right. So, yeah. Um, and obviously, for, for the audience that's here, feel free to input any questions into the I'll, I'll ask uh, Kevin those. Yeah. Um, all right. Cool. So, but the Shroud of Turn Research Project's task 
was was to figure out how the the image was made and there were they had five days 24 hours a day so 120 hours they brought tons of scientific equipment the leading scientific experts with knowledge of that they could apply to the study of the shroud with one task to figure out how the image was made and after five days and hours of research they didn't know yeah yeah and we know that it there was there is no interfibril cementation there are no brush strokes there are some paint flecks on on the cloth mm -hmm. but it was probably from replicas being pressed to the to the shroud as a as a blessing mm -hmm. There's no outlines, you know, artists use outlines. There's no outline on the shroud image itself. And it has what I call a pixel effect. Supposedly, if you get within a, a certain distance within five feet or less of the shroud itself, the image disappears. So right. there there are there is no there are no brush strokes and it it has what i call radiation properties john jackson he, he used to be in the air force long ago and he was a invented or worked with what's called the vp8 image analyzer yeah. and the VP8 image analyzer makes takes an image and makes it into 3D. Mm -hmm. And if if you run a, a painting or a photograph of a painting through a VP8 image analyzer, it comes out blurry because there's no digital encoding or pixel or intensity encoding in it. But when you run the the VP8 the shroud through the VP8 image analyzer, you get a 3D representation because of the, the radiation intensity properties of the shroud. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. I think these these properties that Sterp discovered are are very telling that this thing did cover a corpse. Um, one thing I just wanted to follow up on. So, you said something very interesting about these pattern wounds, about how those would be unlikely for an artist. Um, so I just wanted, uh, number one, uh, can you just give some specifics? Like what, what exactly are these pattern wounds? Um, I'm also interested in terms of the blood flows, because I know some uh, experts, I've had Kelly Kearse on my show, who's a blood expert in the chemistry of it. And he said, well, I'm, I'm not sure, because he's not a forensic pathologist like yourself, how, how do we, uh, or can we distinguish between pre and post-mortem blood flows on the shroud? So if you want to tackle those two follow-up questions. Hmm. Well, the, the pattern wounds, like I said, most people's picture in their minds of what happened during the crucifixion are, are that he was 
nail through the palms and through the feet and that we know he was scourged and that it tore his flesh. And if you look at the shroud, there, there are dumbbell-shaped wounds on his body, multiple on, the, on his legs, on the back of his legs, front of his legs, on his chest, mostly on his back, his torso. And there are only two things that cause pattern wounds, bruises or scrapes. So I think it was mostly bruises, but there was some scraping of the skin. And we know from ancient flagrams, scourge instruments, that there were types that would have inflicted the the wounds as they appear on the shroud. They had dumbbell-shaped lead weights called plumbata that were close to two inches in length and that they were end of, end of a, a wooden handle with three leather straps. And usually there would be two torturers to apply the scourging on either side of the body and the the legal limit was 40 but they would do 39 40 less one we know from scriptures that paul himself was scourged on five different occasions he he received the 40 less one so it, it's difficult to count on the shroud the exact number and and partly because the image has faded some over time, but 39 times three, probably 117 or thereabouts. That's right, yeah. And sorry, I know I asked uh, a lot of the question also about the blessings, but just before you get to that, um, also some people have reported evident swelling uh, and some people have said you can tell like the cartilage has been dislocated from the nose. Is there any truth to that stuff as well or? Yes. Well, like if you look at the shroud on his, his right eye, there is swelling because there is an asymmetry. And one of the reasons we know that the shroud is authentic is it, there are numerous points of congruence. And points of congruence are used in forensics and in police investigation. Mm. It, and we, we know that the usual one is fingerprints. And a fingerprint, you know, if it's somewhere around 15 or 17 points of congruence, let you know that it's, it's a match. That's the person. With a complex image, it's somewhere between 40 and 60 is considered a match and there's there's an icon in the in the sinai desert called jesus christ pantocrator which is a very a very common icon and in fact 
I have it here. I was actually in Egypt. I think I saw it too. So awesome. Yeah. But if you, there are 250 points of congruence with the shroud of turn face from the Jesus Christ Pantocrator, as well as having plant images in the halo. And I, as I said, there are, there are plant images on the shroud itself. But if, if you look at Jesus Christ Pantocrator, you'll see that there is swelling of the cheek. So there is an asymmetry, and I think it was, it came from being struck by the, the soldiers. He was in the presence of the high priest. Awesome. All right, cool. And um, yeah, and follow up, finish off uh, about the bloodstain, uh, because I, I remember Kelly Keir saying, well, look, you need a pathologist to tell you this, because he didn't know, how are you distinguishing between these pre and post-mortem bloodstains? Um, What's your take on that? Uh, well, I don't know if I can speak to that, but I know that because I'm going to say they're all postmortem blood stains and blood clots. It is true blood. Mm -hmm. And there were two claws in the tomb. And one of the reasons... I, I talk about how the shroud is authentic is there's a second cloth in Oviedo, Spain, the Sudarium of Oviedo. And by the way, you're, you're psychic. I, I love, you're answering all my questions. Uh, <laughs> good, good on you. <laughs> <laughs> but the, it has no image on it, which fits with Jewish burial customs, but it does have blood stains. And the people who took down Jesus from the cross and prepared him for burial, they would have covered his face with a sudarium or a face towel. And then they would have taken it off and then put their other half of the shroud over top of his body. So there is no, there are no image characteristics on the, on the Sudarium, but there are blood stains and there are 120 points of congruence with the shroud facial blood stains. Mm, okay. All right. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that... And the Sudarium itself, the blood is AB positive and the cloth itself has pollens on it, similar to the shroud. And the highest concentration is Gundelia. And that is the highest concentration of pollen on the shroud itself. And the Gundelia is a thistle bearing plant. And I, I believe that was part of the crown of thorns. All right. Well, all right. Well, let me ask this then. So, so far you've been getting a, a nice little softball interview, but bring in the shroud skeptics because uh, are you familiar with the 2018 blood pattern analysis study that was done by the, those two atheists there? Or? No, I'm not, I'm not familiar with it. Okay. That, all right. Well, never mind. But uh, basically they, 
set up uh, an experiment where they used a, a mannequin's body and fake blood that was very watery and stuff. And they said, well, look, the, the blood flows are inconsistent with what we see on the shroud. Therefore, the shroud must be a fake. But um, yeah, uh, if, you, if you're not aware of it, no worries then. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it was, <laughs> I was trying to, to look at who had done most of the studies about the blood flows on the arms. And I can't remember if I was reading Ian Wilson's book or if it was Dr. Pierre Barbet, who in 1953, I believe, was the one who had published a doctor at Calvary. And he had done the studies himself. He was a surgeon and that proving that Jesus wouldn't have been nailed through the palms because it couldn't hold the body up. And, and I don't remember if it was him or in Ian Wilson's book talking about the angle of the blood flows would fit exactly with somebody who was nailed to a crux sublimus as Christ was. And, you know, usually people ask about carbon dating and there are, there are many reasons that the, the carbon dating is invalid. Yeah. In fact, the, the inventor of the current carbon dating method is a Dr. Harry Gove. And Dr. Gove has said any carbon dating on, a, on something like the shroud is invalid. It wasn't meant to to date something like that, an artifact like that. And, and there are other reasons that the, the carbon dating can be thrown out. But <laughs> I was I was kind of smiling to myself when you introduced me as an as an expert because I I was reflecting on how we can prove something or you're going to prove something in court. Okay. Mm -hmm. So one of the ways is eyewitnesses. Well, they died about 2000 years ago, so we don't have any eyewitnesses. Another way to prove it is, is DNA testing. Mm -hmm. And there are base pairs on the shroud but there are only 740, I believe, base pairs, and it's too degraded to study. That's and right. even, even if we could analyze it, we have no pre-mortem sample from Jesus. Exactly. Yeah. It's and, and so, and I believe that if Jesus came down to Turin and Italy in his glorified body and said, this is my burial cloth. I think there would be millions or billions that still wouldn't believe or wouldn't care. So all we have left is what's known in, uh, in a court of law is an expert to give reasonable medical certainty. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's all we have left. And to me, it's not just 
reasonable medical certainty, it's overwhelming medical certainty. Awesome. So, so you would, uh, under oath, you would uh, swear under testimony that this is probably covering yeah. the historical Jesus. So. And within more than reasonable medical certainty, this is Jesus's burial cloth. Okay. All right. Well, let me ask this question because believe it or not, uh, so this might sound uh, a little weird to you, but I I'm not wanting to ask you, uh, are you still there? Yeah. How do we how do we know that the shroud man? What are the indicators that tell you, as again as a medical expert, that the shroud man is in fact dead? Because I've had Muslims on the show who will say, "No, he just he just swooned." And the shroud man, yeah, that was Jesus. He was put in the shroud, but he wasn't dead. So I want to ask you, how do we huh. that he was dead? If if you know of any evidence, huh? Well, <laughs> gotcha. if, I don't know how you've listened to my, you've listened to my talk, my live presentation that I believe the image was formed through a combination of, of particle radiation, uh, augmented by static electricity. And I don't know how that was initiated, but there's a live body <laughs> could not dematerialize. And one of the things he is, he had probably undergone what's called cadaveric spasm. Uh, rigor mortis is a stiffening of the body, which occurs after death. And the reason it occurs is because there are two compounds or molecules, actin and myosin, which couple. And the uncoupling requires energy. So after death, when there is no more energy AT adenosine triphosphate generated the the muscle fibers can't uncouple and that leads to stiffening of the body and then when decomposition sets in then the bonds dissolve and the the muscles relax but if you look at the feet the the toes are pointed which is an indication to me that there indeed was cadaveric spasm, that Jesus was completely depleted of energy at the time of death. And so that is one way that I, that I would answer that. And I, I'd have to think of some more about why that how you can refute what the Muslims say that Jesus didn't die because yeah. how could God uh, die? Another thing that look at the chest wound. Um, maybe that's another indicator. Like could, could, could a man have survived a wound like that in the chest? Do you think, or <laughs> well, not from, not from a Roman lance. And that's why I, 
I know from, I know that, hang on just a second. No problem. So yeah, you guys are left with me to entertain you while we wait, but uh, yeah, my my answer is no, no. I, I think that chest, okay, we've got back to you. Okay, we, <laughs> sorry about that. No, no worries. There were two types of crosses in the, in the Roman world. There was a low cross and a high cross. I believe that Jesus was crucified on a high cross. Okay. And by low low cross, you mean like the position of the 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 cross beam, or are you talking about how high the how high the cross was? Okay. okay. The the tau cross or low cross was about six feet high. Okay. So the 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 victim's feet would be close to or touching the ground. A high cross, I believe, was about nine and a half feet to 10 feet tall. And that would make it easier in some ways for the executioners. And the chest wound has, it's a perfect ellipse is the chest wound. And that tells me that a high cross was used because in, in fencing and in war, a lance wound, you would want to, to kill somebody immediately. You would want to puncture the right heart. And because the right heart, the chamber of the, of the right heart is flabby. The left ventricle especially is very muscular. And there, there are historical accounts of people sur surviving at least for a short time with, a, with an incised wound of the left ventricle because it, it closes off. But the any wound to the right heart would not close off readily. And if, if you were to stab somebody in the heart, as a, a fencer would do, you would want to, it's going to naturally, when you pull back, you're going to twist, which makes more of a circular wound, which can't close off. But what happens on the skin, when there's that twisting motion, it will leave what we call pigtails at either end of the, of the wound. So it will not be a perfect ellipse. And if you, if you were to picture Jesus up high, when the lance wound was inflicted, they, they, puncture the right side of his heart, yeah. which is what they want to do. But when he'd pull back, he there wouldn't be a twisting motion. So that's why you have a, a perfect ellipse. And the other thing that a, a Roman lance would do, not only would it puncture the right side of the heart, so the person would exsanguinate, but the electrical conduction system is is in the septum of the heart 
and it would have it would have perforated or caused an incised wound of the conduction system. So he would have died immediately or a victim would die immediately if they were still alive. I believe Jesus was dead at the time. Okay. All right. Well, one thing, um, just before I ask the next question, I just want to get clarification because I think I heard you in one of your answers about the blood flow patterns. Um, you mentioned, you think that these are all, these all came up like after Jesus was crucified or taken down. Some experts like Gilbert Lavoie have said, well, the angles reflect him having his arms out, outstretched and outraised. Um, and yes. I've heard some skeptics saying that, well, look, if you have the nails plugging, plugging up the wounds, then blood would not flow out. Um, so I just wanted to have you address those two aspects. Number one, how do you address the ang seeming angles? And like, what do you make of skeptics saying there wouldn't be any blood flows because it would the wound would be plugged by the nails? Well, the the angles I think correspond to someone who was crucified on a crux sublimus. And you, that's another reason why I believe not only from, from the, the, the shroud blood flows around the ankle and historical, uh, relics from ossuaries in Jerusalem or in Israel that Christ was crucified through the ankles. And there is a what's it's called the tarsal sinus, which is a, a small, not too small, but a channel which goes from the, the lateral outside part of the ankle to the medial part of the ankle. And I was for a long time, I was trying to figure out how he could be crucified through the ankles without fracturing his bones, but there is a tarsal sinus. And that would be, that would fit with, I believe, what the executioners needed to do because the mechanism of death in crucifixion is suffocation or asphyxiation that you can't exhale unless you elevate your rib cage and you just have shallow diaphragmatic bleeding. Well, if you crucified the victim through the ankles, through the tarsal sinus, it would form sort of a, a hinge where the body would sag more and in order to breathe, it would truly be excruciating pain to push up with your ankles, lift up with your hands. So he was slumped on the cross that his shoulders were below his, his wrists. And probably for the, the majority of the time he was on the cross, and the, the, the nails used in crucifixion were, were about a half an inch at the head 
They were about four and a half inches in length and tapered. And you can't, you, you don't sever a, a major blood vessel. Otherwise, death would occur too rapidly for them. So you, you're going to get blood oozing from, from those wounds. Okay. Okay. So it wouldn't, it wouldn't plug it up based on the way the Romans crucified. Cause um, yeah. It's, no. it's, have you, are you familiar out of like with the modern, I think in like India and stuff, they do do like modern crucifixions and they point to that and say there, well, there's no blood coming out of those guys. But um, from my understanding, it, it's to the positions and stuff. It's totally different. Um, do you know anything about that or? No, I don't. I don't know. I've, we lived in the Philippines and on, on good, on good Friday, they have flagellants and there was a, we actually went to the place where a guy is crucified and he's actually nailed, nailed to a cross. He made a vow if, if God would, would save his child from a severe illness that he would, he would be crucified every year on Good Friday. And at his, the wounds have scarred in his hands, so he doesn't, he doesn't bleed, but the, the, the flagellants bleed. <laughs> I made the mistake of wearing white pants and I had, I had blood all over me. Oh man. Oh. <laughs> so, Live and learn, right? Yes. <laughs> All right. Um, okay. And uh, last, last follow up on uh, this specific topic, because I noticed you mentioned Jesus was uh, nailed through the ankles specifically, and this is backed up by archaeological support um, from actual crucifixion victims. Now, one person, some people might say, yeah, but if you look at the shroud man, it looks like he's nailed through like the, the front of the, the foot. Uh, sorry. Uh, not through the ankles. So, like, how do you how do you reconcile that? Well, uh, I've looked at the shroud many times, and I don't see any concentration of blood on the sole of the foot. There is there are blood stains, but you see blood clots and blood flows coming from the ankle, mm -hmm. and, and that would fit with the way he was prepared for burial because if you think about it the the shroud was opened up in the tomb they brought him from the cross and laid his body <laughs> i think his head was at the halfway point but they i'm sure they wouldn't have just dropped him down they would have put one side on <laughs> one side down and rolled him. And you can see that there are blood clots and blood flows coming from the, you know, perpendicular to the ankle. And you don't see any concentration of blood on the soles of the feet. And as I said, the, the frontal image, the feet are cut off, but you see a large concentration of blood around both ankles. All right. Awesome. Um, all right, cool. Well, 
the next question then kind of, it's kind of related, but it's uh, so I had uh, the shroud skeptic Hugh Ferry on, and um, one one of his major points against this is, you know, look, you have all these med medical experts that claim the shroud is anatomically accurate and all that, but look, these people disagree with each other. Where, where was where did the nail go through? Is it the space of desktop or some other? location there there are different theories that medical experts have as to the specifics as to how where the nail penetrated and that sort of thing so um i'm not sure if you're aware of the different um medical opinions on that stuff but you know, how do we reconcile that is isn't that just look we're all just engaging in guesswork we can't really tell from the shroud itself well you can uh, i mean that's Dr. Barbet's theory, which mm -hmm. seems to be backed by the shroud, it was through the, the space of Desto, mm -hmm. and which would also fit not just anatomically, but it would secure him more com most completely to the cross, as well as more than likely partially severing the median nerve. Mm -hmm. And if the nail were to go someplace else, it might sever an artery, which would, which would cause rapid death. And I think you heard on my talk, severing a nerve such as the median nerve is is referred to as causalgia or causalgic pain mm. <laughs> there's there's even a name for it as complex regional pain syndrome type 2 that it it's specified as a particularly severe pain and not only does it cause burning pain severe burning pain but it radiates and not only does it radiate but it it probably caused muscle spasm so the, the um, and and the nails themselves would also cause periosteal pain which is is very severe that your viewers may know some of them may have had bone marrow biopsies and a bone marrow biopsy takes about a minute to perform. And I've had patients that have cried with the thought of having to undergo another bone marrow biopsy. So you would have had a periosteal pain, causalgic pain, muscle spasm, which was exacerbating the first two. Mm -hmm. So it would be you, you can know for certain why the ancients dreaded crucifixion. Okay, okay. And, and that also explains why the thumb is kind of tucked in right on the Yes, yes, that's, that's been said that when you sever the median nerve, the the thumb gets opposed to the palm. 
Okay. All right. Well, what I want to do, I want to just show a five minute clip uh, from my previous panel with the Shroud Skeptic because he gives visuals. Um, so hope, do you mind if I just play that five minute clip and then have you respond? Well, can I, I just want to say one thing. Some came to my mind when you were asking about was, was Jesus, was he dead? Mm -hmm. Well, if you, if you look at high resolution photographs, especially of the negative image of the shroud, there is, there is bony and bony detail and tooth detail. So you can see parts of the skull. So a live person isn't going to make an image that shows his bones <laughs> or the teeth in his skull. Okay. So like you're, you're thinking that these things are exposed to the, like the yes. teeth and then it's not well, like. What, whatever made the image expose them. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Cause I, I know like with the x even if you even if you were to accept the the radiocarbon date, somebody is gonna show bony detail of a of a live person, or you know, Jesus is gonna be alive and somehow the image was made two thousand years ago, but it 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 shows bony detail and I You've seen my my talk. One of the one of the most overwhelming pieces of evidence as to the authenticity of the shroud is the Divine Mercy image, which was painted in nineteen thirty between nineteen thirty one and nineteen thirty four. Mm -hmm. And if you superimpose the Divine Mercy image of Jesus on the shroud image according to forensic anthropologists it's an identical match gotcha yeah yeah all right that's i think you you kind of hinted i i think i know how you might answer this uh clip that i'm gonna show here but i just want to show you this five minute clip and then get your expertise on it if it will pop up all right there we go sure all right. Are, are you able to see that? Yes. Okay. Sure. Awesome. All right. Just play the five minute clip and then I'll come back to you. Yes. How about that? Can you see that hand? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, now, uh, can somebody tell me, you could use the names of the bones on the right hand side, where you think the wrist wound was? Oh, there's the one doctor, uh, Fred Zugabe says it's a quarter of an inch off from where Barbet says, but uh, I don't know. So, I mean, the, well, all I'm suggesting is that the uncanny anatomical precision, which about five different doctors have claimed, when you actually ask each one, be uncannily anatomically precise and say where the wrist wound is, and they come up with five different answers. And the trouble is, you have to say, not that they're all idiots, because these are all highly experienced pathologists. What you have to say is that the shroud is not sufficiently, um, is not sufficiently uh, anatomically uh, delineated to be able to be sure. It's a blur. 
people go on and on about how incredibly uh, high resolution it is, but it isn't. And I say, if, if there's any doctor who looks at this podcast afterwards and can say, yes, I think it went through the space of desktop, well, point out where the space of desktop is and let's, let's for the sake of convenience, whack it through one of those holes. So either between the capitate, the hamate and the lunate bone, if you can spot those, they're the three big ones on the right-hand side. Oh, look at that. Yes. Or that, so that little, that little, the joint where, the, where those three bones meet, the capitate, the capitate, the hamate and the lunate, never, never down a bit, down a bit, down a bit. Where, that's it there. That's one place uh, which was suggested. And the other place is the next one along between the capitate, the lunate and the scaphoid bone. So along a tiny bit, along to the left, a tiny bit. Left. The scaphoid's on the left. Oh, this one. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So up, 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 follow that arrow up and go along a bit to the right, bit to the right, bit to the right. There. So that point there, or the other point which you just mentioned, these are typical places where people say they think that the wound is. Now, he says carefully, look on the picture of the hand on the right hand or the left hand side and the middle of the middle of the wrist that's where people go for the bone being and look at the distance between that point and the knuckles and you'll immediately say i hope you'll say that the distance between that point and the first knuckle is a lot greater than the distance between the first knuckle and the finger joint in the middle of the fingers are, are you with me everyone's looking completely stunned here <laughs> so sorry, so again, what are you saying? That it's yeah, which distance from, from the knuckle there downwards mm -hmm. to the middle of the box there, that distance. So go back up to the knuckle. Okay. It's much bigger than from there. And now go up the finger to the middle of the finger. Okay. And then on to the middle of, to there. Okay. So you've got these two um what are they, carpals or tarsals? Carpal bones. Carpal. Yeah. Um, of phalanges, in fact, three phalanges, the second, first phalanges, the carpals are the, are the wrist bones, aren't they? So the, 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 the long, thin ones are the other phalanges. So we've got a long one and then a short one. And then from there to the little one just below, just below the, the fingernail, up a bit, shorter still, the dun, 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 shorter still. And then you've got the last one where the fingernail is. So you've got four bones there, a little one, a slightly longer one a much longer one and a very long one indeed. Now, I only point this out, I know it's a bit awkward, but if you look at a picture of the shroud and then you try and have a look to see how long the distance is between the uh, entry wound and the knuckles, which are visible, you'll find that it's only about the same length as it is from the knuckle to the middle finger joint. All right, so that was just the clip, and and obviously what he's saying, if you look at the shroud, he's trying to say, well, see from the exit wound, he he mistake that it's the same size from there to the knuckle as from here to there, and that's kind of a anatomical inaccuracy that he's saying. So yeah, with that said, over to you, um, Kevin. Like, uh, what do you what do you make of Hugh's argument here? Um, is he out to lunch or? I don't know what his point is. <laughs> He's admitting that there is a wound. 
And I think it's more than likely the space of Destat. And the, the blood itself obscures the, where the, precisely the wound is, where the, but, you know, the, the nail itself is going to be tapered. And so where the, the point of the nail was on the outside of Jesus's wrist, does it really matter? What? Go ahead. I was just, do you think he has a point? Like one of the main points he was trying to say is like from where the, the finger bone starts up to the knuckle, that's, that's longer should be longer than from the knuckle to this mid middle point on the hand. And he's saying on the shroud, they're the same, same size. Um, I don't know if, if that's true or what, what your take on that is. Well, I, I would have to look at my, the photos myself that I have here and, and get back to you on that. But cool. to me, cool. to me, it's what's, uh, I don't know what the difference is. It it seems to fit with that it would have been through the space of Destat, as I said, secure him more firmly, increase his pain. And I don't know that you can tell with great precision where the exit wound is because of the the blood being obscured by the blood awesome okay um, I, would, I would look i could look at that and get back to you yeah that'd be great and I'll, I'll when you give me the answer i'll post that up on my blog for for people as well so yeah that would be awesome um all right well just last kind of question for you in in general and um there's two components so the, the first one it's kind of similar to what he was just saying but in general, there are some anatomical inaccuracies that have been found on, on the shroud, right? So some people will say the fingers are too long. I think that's what he was saying there. Or, or one of the arms is too long. Uh, the right arm is too long. Um, you know, stuff like that. So just I wanted to get your take. Uh, does that, do these anatomical inaccuracies in any way rule out the use of a real corpse? And the second aspect is I've, I've heard some uh, pro shroud guys using some of the anatomical inaccuracies, like a thin right thigh. Uh, the, one of the thighs on the frontal image is thinner than the other one. Mm -hmm. This actually is conducive to proving that it was a real body. And obviously there was a tenting effect. So those are the two aspects that I wanted you to, to deal with. Well, that's it. Those are interesting questions. I think that it may have been Dr. Barbet addressed address the, you know, the arm length or because he was crucified. <laughs> his, his body was contorted and, and a lot of things that happened to his body were involuntary because he was basically seizing while he was on the cross and What's interesting about saying that the fingers are too long, it, it goes back to what I was saying about the image has what's called autoradiography characteristics, that there was a radiation phenomenon and they're actually, the fingers 
look thinner and longer because the bones are exposed. And it's people ask me how how tall and how heavy was Jesus? And I say, well, he's probably my height and weight, but there it's very hard to tell precisely because there are no outlines. So and his toes are pointed, so you have to sort of make some guesstimations as to how he would appear if he was standing flat-footed to calculate his height. But a lot of a lot of the people who think that his arm or his fingers are too thin and too long, it's because of autoradiography. And you really can't tell the exact length of the fingers because there are no outlines. You know, it's a, it's a sort of a, a blurred image on the, on the outlines of his body based on the intensity. And also if my, if my theory is correct, that the image was made by particle beam radiation the, the cloth had variation as to how closely it conformed to different parts of the body, whether it's left or right or his head or his feet. And, and so the image is going to vary a little bit. And since there are no outlines, it's very hard to calculate with real precision some of these lengths. Yeah. Especially if the things are obscured by, by blood, blood stains. Exactly. Yeah. Mo most of the the shroud skeptics they do, they just well, how does it look? They're looking at a photo of a flattened cloth. They don't know the circumstances of the image formation. So, yeah, there's there's just too many assumptions and stuff. Um, uh, well, that's one of my favorite. There was a there was a History Channel special. Uh, the the you've probably seen it these guys that were experts in computer graphics they they wanted to build a model of what jesus looked like from the shroud mm -hmm. and i think you can if you look at the vpa image analyzer photos Dr. John Jackson, that, that was his method of studying the shroud in the beginning. One of my favorite VP8 image analyzer pictures of the shroud is of Jesus's face. And you can see distinctly a leaf just underneath his ear, where his ear would have been. And, and so the, the flowers and plants that were buried around Jesus are part of the shroud image. Interesting. And I mentioned the Jesus Christ Pantocrator, the, the one that's in the Sinai Desert actually has plant images in the halo. And Dr. Avinuam Danin is the leading expert on the flora of the Shroud of Turin. And he has sent me botanical samples and 
you know, <laughs> the 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 floor of the shroud of Turin is is very striking and profound, and he's a Jew, so he doesn't have a he doesn't have a dog in the fight, okay. and he, according to him. The plant characteristics, the flowering characteristics that are present on the shroud, let us know that the image was made in March or April, at between three and four o'clock, or, or the the plants that are on there, or three or four o'clock in the afternoon they were picked, which conforms perfectly with the scriptural accounts of Jesus's time of death and burial. That'd be great. If you don't mind, after the show, I might want to ask you, because I would love to have him on. Um, one of my fans, we just did a show on the pollen studies and stuff like that. And I, I never really addressed the flower images. So yes. uh, if he'd be willing, I'd love to have him on to, to address those topics specifically. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, for you, um, one last follow-up question here is, um, have, are you aware of the computerized uh, anthropometric studies that are on the pro shroud side. They confirm that he's anatomically accurate. And if you are, what's your take on those? Do you find them valid or? No, I I am not aware of those. Gotcha. But, no I I heartily concur. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a it's a valid just in general. Like it, it is a valid way. The computers are able to. To, from your knowledge in the medical industry, can you use the, these kinds of technologies to verify or falsify? Yes, yes. And that's, that's what I find so encouraging and heartwarming about the divine mercy image because the forensic anthropologists do a great job of determining identities and aging people and to to help police with their work and that's another reason we know that the the shroud has auto radiography characteristics because that it's very accurate the the match between the divine mercy image and the shroud image awesome all right cool well yeah i think that that does it for my list of questions um just before we go do you, is there any other topics that you that i didn't ask you about that you're like you really want to to speak about or are you happy to just give a closing word it's up to it's up to you you're the guest so <laughs> well i i'd like to say i know with every fiber of my being, that the Shroud of Turin is Jesus's burial cloth. But even if I was to convince everyone, everyone of your audience, everyone on earth, that that was true, it still goes back to who do you say that I am? 
Exactly. Well said. All right. Awesome. Well, yeah. Just want to say thank you so much for for putting up with me and my my questions the whole time. I I hope you had a good time on your end. There. Yes. Sorry about my dog. <laughs> no, no problem. Hey, <laughs> welcome. He, he livens things up for us. Right? <laughs> He's sleeping now. Right here. <laughs> All right. Awesome. So yeah, thank you so much again for coming. And um, just so the audience knows, so I think on Friday night, the next show, uh, it's run by Tyler and it's going to be on uh, personal testimonies related to drug use because that before they came became Christians, they had issues with drugs. And yeah, so that's what the show is going to be about on Friday night. So yeah, with that said, have a, a very have a good topic. Definitely. It's, it's needed today. Uh, definitely. So, all right, well, have a great day and I will click the red button. Thank you, Dale. Good talking to you. Take care. You too. All right. All right. I just hit the button.